Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. And I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. This is another podcast devoted to the ever-expanding story of the H1N1 influenza epidemic. And we have another uh, international expert speaking with us today, Dr. Naomi O'Grady from the National Institutes of Health. Dr. O'Grady is a senior staff physician in the NIH's Clinical Center's Critical Care Medicine Department, and she's the medical director of the department's vascular access and conscious sedation services. In addition, she's an attending physician with the Pediatric Critical Care Medicine Department of the Children's National Medical Center, and she's an assistant professor of medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in their, in their uh, Division of Infectious Diseases. Thank you so much, Dr. O'Grady, for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. Um, as I was discussing with you before, you know, we're doing a number of these podcasts to try and get some information out in real time to the members of SCCM and taking advantage of, of our experts. And so uh, it's exciting to have somebody like you with a focus in both disaster management and infectious disease. And I thought I'd let you begin by making some introductory comments about this H1N1 influenza and talk about influenza in general or, or disaster management. Sure. I would, uh, I'll make a few comments uh, about the most recent news coming out of the World Health Organization, which is their suggestion and uh, pressure to uh, change the name in terms of how we refer to this uh, influenza virus to H1N1, as you just did in your introduction. Uh, we're trying to move away from calling it swine flu because, uh, in fact, it really isn't just simply a swine flu. It is uh, a conglomerate of uh, it's a it's a reassortment of several strains of influenza type A, uh, and they are separately endemic in humans, endemic in birds, and endemic in swine. But they have reassorted themselves in one cell and have become uh, a, a virus that now travels from person to person. Um, and I, I would love to actually follow up on this because we have so many issues to get to and because we're focusing on critical care, I guess it's important that we also get to some of the uh, disaster management issues. But just to clarify, because this comes up in the press a lot, th there are H1N1 influenza viruses that are considered human, and this is not one of those. Uh, this is not one of those. This is a new strain. It's a completely new strain uh, that is made up of some of the genetic material from three different uh, flu strains. One, a human flu strain. One is a, a an avian flu strain and uh, another from swine. And uh, we were discussing this on a, on a previous podcast with a colleague of yours, Dr. Mm -hmm. Beigel, mm -hmm. and again, trying to make some sense out of what can be confusing to even a physician who is, if you're not an infectious disease mm -hmm. physician, some of the terminology, I mean, I remember when we were just deciding a couple of days ago about this, uh, the president of the United States was was coming out with different definitions of it, like you just said, said not calling it the, 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 the swine flu anymore. Um, what are the clinical implications of saying that it isn't a human influenza virus? 
Is that in, in imply in terms of that's why we don't have immunity to it or, or yes. what? Well, so exactly. This is a brand new strain, which we've never seen before. And whether or not we have immunity or not is uh, still uh, a question that I, I think we don't know the answer to. The question has been uh, posed uh, for all the people out there who were vaccinated to the swine flu in the 1970s. Uh, could there be some immunity? And I think the answer is we don't know. Um, certainly, this particular virus is a is a new virus, uh, but there may be some antigens that were present in the old swine flu that has been incorporated into this new influenza. But I think, in general, the feeling is that uh, that we just don't know what the level of immunity might be. Uh, for people who had been vaccinated in the past. Uh, we do know that there's no immunity in in the community from having seen this virus before because we haven't seen this particular virus before. I guess uh, uh, two of the major issues, and again, these are brought up in the press, and maybe if you'd like to use uh, the time to try and clarify, it seems to me the two issues are the, the rapidity with which the disease is spread and then the severity of the disease. And, and both of those are sort of being clarified more and more each day, if you'd like to take a few moments. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, the way this is spread is from person to person. It has been uh, it, 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 one of the troubling things about this particular influenza is that uh, we know that you shed the, the virus about one day before you actually have symptoms. I see. Which makes it quite difficult to contain the virus because we don't know who to contain until they show us symptoms. And once they've shown us symptoms, they've been shedding the virus for about a day. Uh, So, yes, this does spread very rapidly. And the severity of the disease, uh, the thing that comes up in the press all the time is why is it so severe in Mexico and it doesn't seem to be as severe here. Well, I think the answer is we actually don't know how severe it will be here uh, because I don't think we've seen, you know, the we haven't seen the peak of the the spread of this virus yet. I think we're going to be seeing more cases, and as we see more cases, we may in fact see uh, more severe disease. We don't know what was going on in Mexico in terms of why everybody was so sick. It may, in fact, be that not everybody was so sick, and it was only the people who were uh, who were most ill were the ones who were seeking medical attention. So we really don't know what the denominator information is in Mexico. It may be that thousands of people were sick, and you know only 60 some died. That would be very different than if only 60 people got sick and 60 of them died. So we don't really know what the denominator information is in Mexico, and we're still trying to sort through that. Um, I I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about a couple uh, other important issues. One um, is is emphasizing, as you were starting to before, but I think is worth mentioning again just because it's come up so much as this, that it has nothing to do with with eating pork or anything like that, which I know is becoming this international issue. The first issue is uh, that you mentioned was... um, uh, whether or not you can get this from this from swine or from eating pork, and the answer is no. This disease spreads from human to human. It does not spread from eating co- pork. It doesn't spread from 
um, you know, buying pork products or, you know, eating undercooked pork. So what we're seeing in the news about some governments um, culling herds of pigs doesn't make a lot of sense based on the way this disease is spread. So that's, uh, that, that's uh, the one issue to emphasize. Dr. O'Grady, one of the one of the questions I have, and, and I'm sure other physicians as well, is what what is the precise difference or definition between an epidemic and a pandemic, and what would be the clinical implications? Well, I don't think there are any clinical implications uh, for individual patients, but epidemics and pandemics refer to the spread of infectious diseases among a population. The difference between an epidemic and a pandemic is twofold. First, a pandemic is normally used to indicate a far higher number of people affected than an epidemic. And a pandemic refers to a much larger region affected. So in the most extreme case, the global population is affected by a pandemic. An epidemic is defined by, you know, an illness or some health-related issue that is showing up in more cases that would normally be expected. So, in other words, if, for example, if we had five cases of rabies um, in a community, that would be considered an epidemic because that's a lot more than would normally be expected, simply just five cases. I see. But uh, five cases of influenza uh, would not be an epidemic because that's, that's what we would expect. So, in the case of a pandemic, Again, even more of the population is affected than an epidemic. The point, though, that you're making is for the person sitting at home or for the physician out in practice or for the intensivist, the, the, the fact is this looks like it may be heading towards a pandemic, and that is not a reason to do anything differently either locally or regionally, right? Correct. Okay. Correct. I think that's a really important point for our listeners. Uh, I thought we might, if you were interested, segue uh, sort of switching hats for you from infectious disease more towards critical care and disaster management. What are some of your recommendations, I guess, for a particular hospital or for a particular area, at least some of the things that you would go through in a structured way to uh, either prevent the spread of it or if you can't prevent the spread of it, preventing it from getting worse within your hospital? What are some of your issues for, for from a from a disaster management perspective? Right. Well, uh, certainly uh, you have to start looking for the virus um, as people come in the door, and that includes not just the patients but visitors as well. At our own hospital, we are uh, asking visitors uh, whether or not they've been ill uh, and whether they've traveled to Mexico. Certainly people who who are at risk for influenza, suspected of having influenza, uh, those people we would ask to, if they were visitors, we would ask them not to visit. And if they're patients, depending on how ill they are, uh, you know, they either go home and self-quarantine or if they're admitted to the hospital, we certainly put them in a private room. And uh, right now, the CDC is recommending a negative airflow, a negative pressure room, and uh, they're recommending an N95 mask or personal protective equipment, uh, PAPRs, uh, as part of the respiratory part of the uh, isolation. That may be overkill, but we just don't know. It's uh, certainly the most conservative way 
to manage that until we know more. And that this has been um, confusing for me as, as a physician coming into this because, um, and again, uh, speaking with the other people that we've been doing on these podcasts and reading what I can, it, it sounds like the 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 theory is that this should be droplet and you shouldn't need to have the N95. Mm-hmm. But then from the experience with SARS, that there are concerns that the disease may become an airborne one or something like that. Is that right? That's right. So we, we don't know. Uh, and, you know, most respiratory pathogens haven't read the textbooks. <laughs> and they, they don't always uh, follow exactly uh, how they are described. But in general, droplet precautions would mandate that, uh, that you wouldn't necessarily need an N95 mask. But we just don't know. Um, the CDC has recommended a combination of, of droplet precautions and airborne precautions, uh, the same type of precautions you might use for a patient who has TB. Uh, they've also uh, extended the area that they consider close contact, usually for influenza and for RSV, some of these other viruses. Uh, three feet has been uh, what we have traditionally said was close contact with a patient. Uh, The CDC has recommended that we use six feet until we know more because we really just don't know know, how quickly this virus spreads, how much close contact is needed, and uh, uh, how long the the virus survives on surfaces uh, and on droplets. So six feet is now the recommendation. Uh, I had another question that you probably will find interesting is uh, sort of as an expert in both parts, the ID and the the, uh, disaster management, I was wondering, what is your perspective on how things have gone over the last few days? And what are some of the big things that you're looking to see or not see in the next week or so? I mean, for somebody like myself as an intensivist, but not an expert in the particular influenza pandemic issues, I'm not quite sure of sort of the time frame that we're looking for. Is this going to be going on for another few days or is this going to be months or we don't know? Or what are your thoughts? Yeah, we don't know. That's the that's the bottom line. We don't know. as an infectious disease uh, trained person, I, I I think that the most likely thing is we will see this. We will see an increase in the number of cases in the next few days to a week. It may be longer than that. Uh, I don't know, uh, but I do expect to see more cases. People have talked about quarantine a lot, and uh, you know, down in Texas, uh, there's one school district that completely shut down. Um, I don't know what the right answer is, but I think we might learn something from what they are doing in Texas to know whether or not this intervention actually does uh, have a beneficial effect in in, uh, reducing the spread of virus. I'm not sure that that's what we want to do for, for everyone because if it doesn't have the effect that we think it will or intend that it will, uh, then we may be uh, we may be causing more problems than we're solving. No, it's been surprising to me uh, as not an infectious disease expert how variable even within different strains of influenza that they can act. And as you were, I was reading in other pandemics that it isn't surprising that it may act one way in a certain country and differently in a different country. That that there is precedent for that. There is precedent for that, and uh, we we just don't know why that is. Uh, if there's some genetic predisposition uh, in in one co- in country A uh, that there's not in country B, or one of the other uh, 
speculative remarks about uh, why the segment in Mexico happened to be 20 to 40-year-olds uh, and not necessarily the very old or the, the very young. It may just be that those were the first people that contracted the virus, uh, because the the thought is that this virus came from a large pig farm down in uh, Mexico. It may be that it was the pig farmers that got it first. So those are the folks that are 20 to 40 years old, and maybe those are the first people that came to medical attention. And now in Mexico, we may be seeing other segments of the population affected. Would you like to make any comments about therapy uh, in terms of the oseltamivir and, and having it available in hospitals and who should get it and all that? Sure. Uh, the, the good news about this virus is that it is uh, susceptible to uh, oseltamivir and uh, zanamivir. So we have two, two very good drugs for this virus. Amantadine is not effective. So um, the cheaper antivirals are are the ones that are not working for this particular virus. I'm sure that there is a run on uh, oseltamivir and zanamivir in uh, the community. I'm sure pharmacists are filling lots of prescriptions just to have some on hand. I I don't think people need to panic and uh, run out and get it if... People do have symptoms. They should see their health care provider uh, quickly, within 24 hours, uh, because these drugs are not effective if they are taken beyond 24 to 48 hours of symptoms. What we want to do is conserve our uh, allotment of antivirals that work for this organism, uh, not use it indiscriminately. Uh, certainly, there's a risk for uh, this virus to mutate and uh, to become resistant to the current drugs that are effective. So we want to use these drugs wisely. Would you like to make any concluding comments about, um, you know, we're really seeing the local health care agencies, the national uh, CDC and all that really interacting, and things seem to be working pretty well. Do you want to make some concluding comments on, on your perspective on all that? Yeah, I think I think that uh, things do seem to be working well in terms of communication and uh, information getting out there as, as quickly as uh, as people know it. So I would say stay tuned uh, and watch the news. The information is getting out there quickly, and I think uh, most of the news agencies are doing a great job in reporting uh, you know, what we learn day to day. And again, this is changing day to day. And I think the general recommendations uh, that, that for critical care practitioners is be aware of your current bed capacity, think about your surge capacity, but we're not quite into switching into the triage mode yet, right? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, right now, this is not a critical care disease. Uh, right now, this is a disease that's out in the community that is uh, that has a fairly benign course, but we do, as intensivists, need to be uh, on the lookout for patients who are coming into the ICU with respiratory illnesses, and it needs to be on our mind to uh, definitely needs to be in the differential diagnosis. And for those patients uh, where you do have a high index of suspicion, I think uh, moving prudently to uh, private rooms and negative pressure is the right thing to do when it's available. If it's uh, Obviously, if you get more patients than you have negative pressure rooms, then we need to do our best to cohort patients or to... Um, uh, to use rooms that don't necessarily have negative pressure and 
to use the standard uh, you know, public uh, health recommendations of isolation and uh, washing your hands uh, and making sure that uh, contact with patients who are infected uh, is limited to only those people who need to be present. So, so stay calm, stay rational, stay up to date on the news, Absolutely. and make sure you think about this disease so that it doesn't spread uh, without thinking about it at least, right? Absolutely. Well, thank you. This has really been terrific. We've been speaking today with Dr. Naomi O'Grady. She is a senior staff physician at the National Institutes of Health's Clinical Center, uh, Critical Care Medicine Department, and she's also an assistant professor of medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Thank you so much, Dr. O'Grady. You've been really very helpful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please visit our website for additional podcasts relating to the continuing story of the H1N1 influenza epidemic. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Infectious diseases are the second leading cause of death worldwide. Many new and re-emerging microbial threats, such as severe acute respiratory syndrome, SARS, SARS, avian influenza virus, and West Nile fever, continually challenge intensive care providers. Attend the 8th Summer Conference in Intensive Care Medicine to learn about ICU infection in an era of multi-resistance in Chicago, Illinois, USA, from June 4th to 6th, 2009, to become knowledgeable on the most effective infection control strategies available. Learn more by visiting www.sccm.org. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.